0: This is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm Sonia Russo. This episode is about the criminal justice system from the perspectives of lawyers of color. I wanted to do an episode about this because I'm a prosecutor and I'm also a woman of color. I believe that what I do benefits my community and makes it safer, but that's the simplest, most one-dimensional way to look at it. For this episode, I wanted to talk to lawyers of color who practice criminal law to explore what the criminal justice system looks like to them in 2021. Much of what they had to say might surprise you. I know it surprised me. Let's get started. For this episode, we talked to Sean Hoover, a first-chair trial attorney with the Georgia Capitol Public Defenders. We also talked to Anthony Santos, a deputy district attorney in Jefferson County, Colorado, and a former colleague of mine. Sean and Anthony have both been practicing law for eight years. We also talked to U.S. Army Major Earl Wilson, the chief of military justice at the 1st Cavalry Division at Fort Hood, Texas. For those of you who are civilians, the chief of military justice is the chief prosecutor, and Major Wilson is with the office of the staff judge advocate. By the way, Major Wilson's views are his own, not those of the Army or the Department of Defense. Just needed to put that disclaimer in there for him. Sean, Anthony, and Major Wilson all started practicing criminal law because they wanted to help people and their communities. What's interesting to me is that they all started out either wanting to do something else or actually practicing another kind of law. Sean never wanted to practice criminal law.
1: I went into law school not wanting to touch criminal law at all because of the cities I grew up in, the areas I grew up in, seeing how my family were treated in the court system, how my friends were. To me, all the attorneys were the same. So a public defender and a DA and a judge, they all, to me, looked like the same person. They treated my family and friends the same way. So when I went to law school, I actually wanted to do international intellectual law. I didn't want to be anywhere near a criminal courtroom. (laughs) Surprisingly.
0: Racist comments in law school classes by both classmates and professors eventually pushed Sean towards becoming a public defender.
1: Well, the first one was in torts to where it was some old case about a train that was coming through like the poor part of town. The train derails and burns down like half of the town. But the train is only on the poor side of town, so it doesn't burn any of the the wealthier houses, just the poor ones. And there was a discussion about how liable the train was and what they should pay out. And my classmates were like drawing the line at like the third house where we're talking about entire neighborhood gets burnt down. And they drew the line at the third house and their responses were, well, if you move to that neighborhood, you know, a train's there or you should have insurance if you're buying a house. And it's like this is literally I think the case called it like the slums. (laughs) These people don't choose to live in the slums, but my classmates, that's how they saw it. And then there were times in evidence I actually got into an argument with my evidence professor because he believes that attorney-client privilege should not exist. He believes whatever a client tells his defense attorney, the state should have all recordings of it. But um, another class I was in, I want to say it was Krim. And there was a case where these two, um, they were Mexicans. They were over the border illegally, but they were living here for forever had a kid, the little girl gets sick, and they're afraid to take the girl to the hospital because they would get deported, or they're afraid they'd get deported. So the little girl dies, and the question is, what happens? And I swear, a classmate that's still a DA now says that both of them should get life without the possibility because her reasoning was, well, she doesn't know if they love the kid anyway, so it doesn't matter. I swear to God, that that's what pushed me over the edge.
0: Anthony's journey was different. It started in college, when he took a criminology course with a professor whose research focuses on why eyewitness testimony is unreliable, primarily because it's tainted by racial bias. Anthony also studied the globalization and nationalization of street gangs, which he says makes him more understanding as a prosecutor.
2: What criminology really kind of showed me is like, no, it's a complex weave of social psychology and economics and all these different things that come into play to, you know, create this process of the criminal justice system, and so I think that kind of complex like interplay made me really interested in the criminal justice system because I had this thought at some point where I was like, you know, what am I going to do with like my skills as like an attorney, you know, that I f- I will feel good about going home every day. And when I thought about like criminal justice system, it's like you're dealing with people's like freedom, you know, you're not dealing with people's like money or you're not dealing with their whatever. You're dealing with people's, like, freedom to be outside of a jail cell or outside of, you know, the jurisdiction of the court. So that was something that really kind of called to me, I think.
0: At first, Anthony was interested in being a public defender and interned at the Public Defender's Office in Orange County. Then, when Anthony was in law school, he had an interview with the D.C. Public Defender's Office. He was asked why he wanted to be a public defender. He said he wanted to fix a system that's sometimes broken.
2: And she basically said, like, well, you want to be a DA then. She said, you don't want to be a public defender. And I was like, "Why?" you know, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you know, public defenders are always going to be like fighters. We're always going to fight. We're always going to fight for our client. We're going to fight against, like, injustice. We're going to fight against things that, like, we believe to be, like, to make the DAs do their job. But at the end of the day, if you're talking about that you feel like you want to have institutional change, then maybe you want to go to the place that has the power. And I really thought about that. And honestly, like after that meeting, it was kind of like full bore head.
0: Major Wilson's journey to joining the Army JAG Corps started after he had already graduated from law school and was practicing sports and entertainment law, as well as criminal defense. Major Wilson was a freshman in college when 9-11 happened. And years later, as a lawyer, he realized something was missing in his life.
3: So I just had this thought like, you know what, I'm going to join the Army Reserves as a judge advocate. And so I, I joined the Reserves and I had no intention on becoming an active duty judge advocate. I wanted to do my part, but still very much build my corner of life in Houston, Texas. And then I got to what's called the Judge Advocate Officer Basic Course. And I just fell in love with being an Army, fell in love with being a part of a team again. I was an athlete all my life and having a purpose Every judge advocate that I met just seemed to love their job. They were happy. They were fit. And there was just this sense of purpose that was beyond just the grind of practice and law. And so I completed judge advocate officer basic course. I went back to my job. It was good to be back home to see family, to see friends. But things just kept calling me back to the Army. After talking to my family and I got their blessing, I just decided to dive in full speed. And I joined active duty. And 12 years later, here I am.
0: Sean, Anthony, and Major Wilson are all lawyers of color. Sean and Major Wilson are Black men, and Anthony is Hispanic. Being a person of color has impacted how each of them practices law. For Major Wilson, he believes his legal advice is more holistic because he's a person of color. For him, that's the biggest reason why diversity, equity, and inclusion are important in the Army JAG Corps and in the legal profession
3: being an african american, you know, growing up in the city of new orleans and being exposed to to all the things that comes with, you know, growing up in urban america, i think has definitely informed how i'm able to see all sides of a case, how i'm able to see all sides of of a situation and be able to consider whether there are extenuating or attenuating or even mitigating circumstances so that when decisions are made or when advice is given it's just given from a holistic approach and i think that that's that's why diversity equity and inclusion which instead of saying all of those terms you know we call it in the army we love to acronym uh turn everything into an acronym D E and i so you know de and i that's why it's important because the more perspectives we can bring into a room the more viewpoints the more experiences i think it gives our leaders the ability to consider all angles and leverage their own experiences in their life with also the experiences and perspectives that people from different walks of life bring to bring about the right outcome, not just for the soldier, but also for the Army and the community as a whole.
0: For Sean, being a person of color has meant that he is routinely mistaken for being a defendant by court personnel and prosecutors. But beyond how he's seen by others, being a person of color has made the most impact with his clients.
1: At first, it's, you know, it's the whole, oh, you're just another public defender. Oh, you work for the state. Oh, you're just going to do whatever the state tells you because they pay your bill. But I mean, I really noticed my impact when... I would see people outside of court and they'll be like, oh, that's attorney Sean. That's attorney Hoover. Or, hey, I saw what you did. And, you know, my cousin, I always get the whole my cousin or my brother or somebody needs an attorney. Can you do this? And I have questions about this. I mean, that's when they looked at me as like one of them and not just a public defender. That's the part that feels the best about it. But that's my impact on it. That's when I knew, oh, God, I do have an impact.
0: For Anthony being a person of color brings empathy and understanding to his practice of law as a prosecutor. Like Major Wilson, Anthony also feels that people of different backgrounds becoming prosecutors improves the profession and expands the public perception of what it means to be a prosecutor.
2: I think that being a prosecutor and a person of color, what it brings is perspective. And what it can bring is empathy and understanding. Because just like being Latino is not a monolith, you know, being a, you know, black indigenous person of color, like any, you know, it's not a monolithic experience. But what you do need to understand is that it's different from your own and that everyone's experience, their upbringing and their life, you know, it's different. And you need to appreciate that. And you need to be empathetic towards it. And you need to look at everything in that lens as well. I think being understanding is what that brings to the table as as you know, a person of color, someone with a background that might be different from someone else. And I think bringing more people into the profession who have different upbringings, who have different cultures, who have different experiences can only benefit. The person who just went from high school to college to law school and graduated, you know, that's what I did, honestly. But like, you know, I bring other experiences to the table. But like, I think that Everyone can bring something different to the table if we really kind of open up the boundaries of kind of like what it means to be a prosecutor. I think some people um, think being a prosecutor is just like throwing people in jail. You know, I've told people, people have just told me all I do is put poor people in jail. You know, I'm sure you've heard that, too. And so, you know, obviously, you got to also know that, like, you can't let that stuff get to you.
0: I've actually had people say this to me, that all I do is put poor people in jail. As I told Anthony when I interviewed him, I've had defense attorneys ask me how I can sleep at night doing what I do. And I've had friends and defense attorneys imply that because I'm a person of color, I shouldn't be a prosecutor. This is what Anthony had to say about that.
2: You know, what I say to those people is like, you know, what you're advocating for is like an exclusion based on experience, right? Like what you're advocating for is like an entire network of power that, people of color and people of different experiences have separated themselves from voluntarily. You know, like I can't think of a worse idea. It's like if someone were to say like, oh, you know what, we should just, you know, Latinos, people of color, like we should just stay out of politics because it's not, they're not working for us. You know what I mean? It's like, what? Like no one would ever say that because it doesn't make any sense. I'm I'm sure people do say it, but it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so, you know, ultimately To say, you know, that people of color, that people of different experiences are are betraying people of similar backgrounds uh, is crazy to me. I think it's a cop-out, honestly.
0: It probably doesn't surprise any of you to know that Anthony and I have generally had positive interactions with law enforcement and the criminal justice system. Sean, on the other hand, has not. He's seen members of his family be incarcerated and be represented by apathetic public defenders.
1: I saw public defenders that didn't know my cousin's name. Like my cousin's been sitting in jail for forever and the first and only time you talk to him is the first time he's in front of a judge. I saw like my mother's last name is Williams and Williams is literally like the <laughs> the black person name. <laughs> every everyone knows a Williams because I mean that's just one of our names. And I couldn't tell you how many times my uncles and my cousins would get stopped or pulled over because They look like somebody and their name, their last name is Williams. I mean, the first time I had to deal with cops, I was 12 years old. The first time I had to deal with the court system, I was younger than that, watching my cousins and uncles go in and out. My godfather spent my entire life in prison. And I saw how every time he came up for a parole hearing, and that's not even court, that's a whole different story. But they treated him as as who he was after Vietnam. They didn't treat him as the person that he'd become 30 years later. So it's just, like I said, they all seem the same to me. Public defender and prosecutor, you could literally put them in different seats and they would do the exact same thing. And nobody was fighting for us or helping us.
0: And so the cycle continues. Make no mistake, the American criminal justice system results in disparate outcomes for people of color. According to the Sentencing Project in Washington, D.C. and the Institute of Crime and Justice Policy Research at the University of London, the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the world, with 639 per 100,000 people incarcerated. To put that in perspective, Russia's incarceration rate is a little more than half of the United States, at 331 people per 100,000. Also according to the Sentencing Project, There's been a 500% increase in the number of people incarcerated in the United States over the last 40 years. But mass incarceration has disproportionately impacted communities of color. Also, according to the Sentencing Project, Black men are six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men, and Latino men are 2.5 times as likely. Those numbers look at the criminal justice system from the back end. Once people are sentenced. But criminal cases start with law enforcement, and it's the treatment of people of color by some law enforcement officers that has infuriated many people. And if you think about it, it's not all that surprising that police brutality happens. Sean explains the historical origin of policing in the United States and how that racist history manifests itself now in disparate sentencing outcomes for defendants of color.
1: When it got to the point where just hanging a person for any reason whatsoever of color or beating a person with an inch of life for whatever reason whatsoever, when it got to the point to where it was it it was frowned upon, I don't even want to say that it, it still wasn't illegal, but it was frowned upon, this system was created to make legal ways of keeping certain people down, keeping certain people from gaining education, keeping certain people from being able to vote, keeping certain people from owning property, keeping certain people to always be in debt to somebody else. I mean, these laws come from exactly the same thing that, I mean, you literally, it went from plantation to servitude to prison. I mean, at the beginning, prisons were work camps. They weren't even really prisons. They were, you're no longer a slave to this family or this person, but now you're a slave to this state or this governor. So go build a road, go farm this land go do these crops. It was exactly the same thing. The easiest way to build that workplace was to create laws that protects people, which means it protects one certain thing is people with property or people with money. And to make sure that you have your heel on the neck of everyone else to make sure they're still supporting you the way they've always been. I mean, That's the quick and dirty way to, to say it. But I mean, even now, if you look at the way sentencing is happening, you get sentenced Depending on what you look like, depending on what your how much money you have, depending on where you live, these sentencing guidelines are ridiculous. You can have the exact same thing and being in two different areas and let it be a little different, like cracking cocaine. You're getting more, you're getting less. Let it be just the amount alone of the exact same drug. You might get more, you might get less. I mean, laws are created to where a CEO can steal millions of dollars from old retirees and he gets a slap on the wrist. A mother can steal $500 worth of stuff from Walmart, she's going to prison for a couple of years. It hasn't changed at all. It just went from we controlled a certain population one way. We have to come up with a way to control them another way. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, prisons are a billion dollar business or industry now. It's ridiculous. It's not for rehabilitation, because think about it, if you rehabilitate somebody, they're technically not supposed to come back. If your workforce doesn't come back, how are you making money? It was never about rehabilitation, just like it was never about equality or is never about protection. It was about we need a force for something and we're going to keep these same people in that force.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
4: It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. ALPS designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. ALPS is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is. And that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A L P S insurance.com.
3: Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at Staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I.cc, and get five hundred dollars off with code Happy twenty four.
4: This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org slash join.
0: Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at InfoTrack.com simple. Welcome back. I asked both Sean and Anthony whether the criminal justice system is inherently racist. Their answers actually weren't so different from each other. They ultimately answered the question in different ways, but they approached the issue from similar places. Here's Anthony.
2: So, you know, you you had sent me this question, you know, previously. And when I first read it, I was like, man, I don't even want to like wade into those waters because, like, no matter how I answer that question, like, there will be someone who will disagree with me, you know? And here's how I honestly, like, this is my most, like, thoughtful answer on this that I could come up with. Is that, you know, the criminal justice system, when I'm talking about the criminal justice system, it's, like, made up of, like, so many different things, right? Like, you know, it's made up of law enforcement, police officers out there. It's made up of prosecutors, made up of defense attorneys, made up of judges, I can't sit here and say that the thing that like I have basically like devoted my professional life to and the thing that I'm engaged in every day is inherently racist. You know what I mean? Do I think that there are structures set up within the criminal justice system that are based on, you know, racist past? Absolutely. And I can't, I mean, that's not even like an opinion. It's just like fact, right? But to say, you know, I again, I think that, When people say like, oh, well, the criminal justice system is just like totally racist. It's just like at its core, it's racist. I feel like that is looking at something with like, you know, just looking at it very quickly and just coming to a conclusion based on a a set of different determinations that you've made prior to it. I think that people are also hypersensitive about their role within a system that people are basically saying is, you know, broken or, or racist. So, you know, I understand that as well. But I disagree with this idea that, you know, the whole system is set up in a way to, you know, the way that it is right now is racist and we can't really do anything about it because that's the way the system is. Because if that were the case, then like what I'm doing is just spinning my wheels, right? Like I'm just like, I'm just, you know, a hamster in in a wheel and I'm not going anywhere, I'm not doing anything. And I don't think that that's what's happening. So again, I think some people are going to think that I'm out of my mind, you know, when I answer that or that I'm like denying the truth. But I think that recognizing our faults, recognizing our our past mistakes and missteps and our past, like atrocities and our past history, I think looking back and actually looking at it for what it is and for what it has produced is important. But I think that the criminal justice system with the right people in place and the right people in charge and, and doing the things that need to be done, like judges and elected prosecutors and and prosecutors, line DAs. I think with those people in place, it absolutely is not inherently racist.
0: What surprised me about Anthony's path is that a few years ago, he decided he didn't want to be a prosecutor anymore because to him, it was agonizing to keep doing that work in the aftermath of Michael Brown's murder in Ferguson. He was so disturbed by what he saw that he quit but he eventually decided to return to being a prosecutor.
2: There have been like several times in my life where I've seen things happen and I've just thought like, what is going on? You know, a huge reason why I left, you know, the DA's office was just a culmination of a lot of different things. You know, I was in the special victims unit, but it was also like pretty shortly after like, you know, Ferguson and and everything, you know, with that. And I just like the whole, everything around just the position was just so charged all the time, and it was like agonizing and then I had a specific case that kind of like took it out of me, but you know when when everything happened, George floyd, yeah, I mean absolutely you you definitely reconsider like how you live how you're living your life, you know it's one of those things where you're gonna remember it for the rest of your life and you're gonna talk to your kids about it and and unfortunate, it's so unfortunate that it had to come to like an event like that to basically shake people awake and say, hey, like, look what is going on.
0: I also asked Sean whether the criminal justice system is inherently racist. His answer was rooted in his acknowledgement of the racist historical origin of the criminal justice system.
1: Well, the answer is yes. But let me back up. I get why you say that, but there is no criminal justice system, at least not where I'm standing. We have a criminal system. The system was what? It was built during the Jim Crow era. It was never built. It was never planned out. It was never meant to be justice for the majority of the people that that are in it. I mean, it was built on certain people that are being screwed over the most by it. So first, there is no criminal justice system. But second, is it inherently racist? Racism is built into the system. And when I say that now, I'm not talking about the court system back in the 60s or the 70s. Even now, you don't have to have the majority of the people in a system to be overtly racist for the outcomes to have racial tendencies or racial issues or racial disparities. I mean, that's where we are at this point. We're at the point where this system is being sustained in such a manner that there are racial disparities everywhere. So even if a DA, I know, well, some DAs I question, but I know all DAs don't go to college and go to law school, and they come out and say, I'm going to screw over all people of color. But they are in a system that perpetuates the exact same thing that's been happening for generations. So I say, yes, it is inherently racist.
0: You can still see for yourself the physical manifestation of the racist history of modern policing and incarceration in a small town south of Atlanta.
1: I swear to you, there is a little town south of Atlanta to where there is a a cotton field, in front of the, like, they built a prison right across the street from a cotton field. It is just, every time I go there, it pisses me off. Every single time. Like, when they look out the window or they're on the yard playing basketball, that's what they see, a cotton field. Like, it's, there's some areas where they are doing everything they can to remind you, this is what you're here for. This is what this system is about.
0: While clearly there is legitimate concern and proof that the criminal justice system isn't always fair, less is known about the impact of the military criminal justice system on people of color. Major Wilson feels that although any unfairness is just perception, it's important to directly address that.
3: You know, you've got 1,328,692 active lawyers in the United States. But of that amount, 5% of all lawyers are African American. But African Americans make up 13.4% of the population. Equally... Five percent of lawyers are Hispanic, but Hispanics make up eighteen point five percent of the population and growing. Cause I I I I doubt that I question that number highly, you know, as of January first, twenty twenty. When when you look at our Asian brothers and sisters, they are six percent of the population, but two percent of our attorneys. And so we in the Jag Corps, you know, I, I, forgive me, I don't have exact numbers, but our numbers aren't that far off. And so I think that when you have a disparity in the administers of justice in relation to the people who are prosecuted or the people who are ultimately making those decisions, a perception could arise of unfairness. And then it goes back to in a commander based system where commanders do make decisions as far as, you know, what cases are referred to trial and things of that nature, you want a diverse group of people around those commanders so that they can view these issues, these real world, real life issues through a lens that gives them the ability to make the best decision that they can. And I think it happens because I'm in the room where these things happen, but the perception, the numbers would cause someone to question it. And I think that that's where I'm very proud that, you know, there are multiple branches within the United States Army, you know, infantry, armor. I'm a judge advocate. The JAG Corps is my branch. And, you know, my branch has gone so far as to set up D.E. and I field boards across the United States Army where there are members of the Judge Advocate General's Corps from senior members all the way down to our most junior soldiers who sit at a table and they have these talks, they have these discussions, because we don't know where our blind spots are. And it's in an effort to make our system better. I mean, the Jack is looking at itself, but it's also protecting the process. Because at the end of the day, every system, whether it's the civilian justice system or the military justice system, it's got to be based on fairness. If society or if the people who are subjected to that system don't feel like it is fair, the system is already lost.
0: According to Major Wilson, the U.S. Army JAG Corps has recently established an Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. So it sounds like at least the Army JAG Corps is taking measurable steps to be a better prosecuting entity. But generally, most civilian prosecuting entities aren't really having these broader discussions and taking steps to ensure that there are more diverse prosecutors. So where do we go from here? For Anthony, it's about prosecutors acknowledging both their own implicit biases, but also understanding their role in the criminal justice system, especially their power, and how to fairly wield that power.
2: What you were talking about, you know, thinking about, you know, am I contributing to the industrial prison complex, the school-to-prison pipeline, all that stuff. You know, I think being aware of those things and educating yourself about those things is the first step to, like, stopping them. Because again, stepping out of the way of those things is kind of being like, wow, this is super messed up. I'm not going to cuss, but you know, this is super messed up. You know, I'm just going to step away from it instead of being like, no, like, let's look at, are we going to send people with drug offenses to prison? Like, are we going to do that? I, Whenever I'm like training new DAs, I, I tell them that like, You know, you have to, like, see the forest through the trees. You have to, like, they're getting hit with so many cases that they need to understand that these are people and these are lives. And, you know, you have to understand, like, that you have inherent biases, even if you don't think you do. And you have to, like, recognize them and confront them. I think being aware of all those things is the first step, like I said, to making sure they don't happen.
0: Sean has two pieces of advice for law students and young lawyers who are thinking about going into criminal law.
1: I think my advice would be these two things. Number one, regardless of the fact that you're going to be a prosecutor or be a defense attorney, be a public defender, that doesn't matter. You are the only one that determines what type of attorney you're going to be. I don't care what office you're in. I don't care the people that you're around. If something feels wrong to you, there's a reason if something doesn't seem right to you, there's a reason. Like, Don't do something simply because everyone else in the office is doing it. Or don't do something because that's the way to get along. Don't do something because this is the way it's always been done. Like, You determine what type of attorney you are. No one else should be able to do that. And I guess my second piece is, on either side, defense or prosecution, if you wake up one day and you feel like not that this isn't a blessing, but this is more like a I deserve to be here type situation, then quit. And that goes for judges too. God, I wish I could tell judges that. Like if you get to the point to where you're at the, I'm not worried about somebody's life. I'm not worried about what I'm doing. I deserve to be here because I've earned it. That mentality is is the exact opposite of what we need. So just determine the type of attorney you're going to be and know why you're doing this. Make sure you're doing this for the right reason.
0: I couldn't agree with Sean more. Whether you're a public defender, a prosecutor, or a judge, you have to make sure you're doing this for the right reasons. Because practicing criminal law is tough, it's intense, and you're exposed to facts and evidence in cases that you will never forget. Some cases stay with you forever. If you're gonna take that on, do it for the right reasons. Because the criminal justice system needs all of us, prosecutors, public defenders and judges to operate fairly. I believe that together, and especially with more prosecutors of color, we can move the American criminal justice system forward so it's fair for everyone. That's our show. Thank you to Eric Reimer for his conducted interview with Major Wilson. Stay tuned for our future episodes, which will include a conversation on making the leap to public service from private practice. This episode was written by me and produced by me and Adam Lockwood. Edit and Mix by Adam Lockwood. Until next time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division.